This show is pre recorded and furnished by Patricia Greenberg, the fitness gourmet. I'm so glad that you finally made it here. You thought nobody cared, but I did. I could tell. And this is your year, and it always starts here and I'm Patricia Greenberg, and welcome to Eat Well, Live Well, Age Well, all things aging well. We have a nice big hour ahead of us today, and first up, we will be talking about bone health with Kevin Ellis, the bone coach, and later on in the hour, Kenny Osen will be joining us. He's the owner of Senior Living Associates, and May is National Osteoporosis Month, Kevin, so I'm thrilled that we're talking about this today. But all we seem to talk about these days is getting older, and what do we do about it? Aging is inevitable, and I hope to think that all of you listeners are embracing this process with gusto and with a positive attitude. Now, instead of viewing getting older as a disease, let's try to view it as a naturally occurring part of the life cycle and get yourself well-informed about what will we be going through every step of the way so we can age and thrive. We often associate aging with the breakdown of our bodies, and and in some cases, this is true. So let's examine some ways to work with this and keep ourselves as healthy as possible for as long as we can. A common condition we hear about and is experienced by millions is osteoporosis, often referred to as brittle bones. But as we age, most people think getting osteoporosis is inevitable. Aging is inevitable, but being ill and infirm isn't. Here to help us decipher this condition is Kevin Ellis, better known as the Bone Coach. He's a certified integrative health coach, bone health advocate, and founder of BoneCoach.com. After his own debilitating health issues and an osteoporosis diagnosis in his early 30s, he eventually cracked the code to improve his health and has committed his life to helping others to do the same. He's most famous for helping people with osteopenia and osteoporosis gain clarity and confidence that improving their lives is possible. His mission is to help over 1 million people around the globe build stronger bones. Kevin, welcome. Hey, thanks, Patricia. So glad to be here. Thanks I'm, for having I'm me. I'm so happy to have you because uh, at my age, um, people in their mid-50s going into their 60s, that's when the doctor orders a bone density test and not before. So we want to talk about that. So let's start out by hearing your story and maybe help us understand what is osteoporosis and its precursor, osteopenia. Sure. Yeah. And you, I mean, great background. I mean, you know, I was diagnosed in my early thirties and really I had a lot of other health issues going on, digestive issues, uh, poor sleep, you know, horrible stress, um, a a lot of other things affecting me at that time. And once I, I really started to scour through the research, consulting with a lot of different people, started applying these things that I, you know, I'd been learning. That's when I was actually starting to get on the path to improvement. And you know, I realized through this process just how challenging it is for the average person, most mostly the average woman who's diagnosed with osteopenia and osteoporosis to, to figure out what they need to do to address bone loss, to build bone strength, to prevent fracture and injury. Because, you know, the prescription for 90% of women who are diagnosed with osteopenia and osteoporosis, and we'll get into what those are in just a minute, is calcium, vitamin D, walking, and a bone drug. And that's woefully inadequate. You know, there's a lot more to it than just that. And and that's really the reason why I started Bone Coach and and BoneCoach.com. And, you know, if I were to outline, there there are really some major misunderstandings when it comes to bone health, to osteopenia, to osteoporosis. But I think a good foundational starting point would be, what is osteoporosis? Yes. Right. Right. So what is osteoporosis? Literally, that means porous bone. 
Okay. It's a disease characterized by either not building up enough bone. Maybe you have excessive bone loss, or maybe it's a combination of both. And in osteoporosis, both the bone quality and the bone density are reduced, which, which that increases our fracture risk. And the, and the way you find out you have osteoporosis is through what's called a DEXA scan. Okay. This is a, a, a dual energy x-ray um, you know, scan. It's a painless test, kind of like an x-ray, but very low levels of radiation. And you lay down on this machine. The machine does a scan to tell you your, your bone mineral density. So the actual mineral content of your bone. And then it generates a score. Okay. And this score is called a T-score. And the T-score is comparing your bone mineral density to that of a healthy young adult. And if you have a score of, let's say, zero, that means that your, your bone mineral density is equal to the norm of a healthy young adult. But if we, you know, if we've got a score of plus one or minus one, that's considered normal or healthy. But as you get a T-score between negative one and negative 2.5, that indicates that you have lower bone mass. And oftentimes that's called osteopenia. And uh, if you get a, a T-score of minus 2.5 or lower, that indicates you have osteoporosis. And the greater that negative number is, the more severe the osteoporosis. And that's really mm -hmm. based on, on the World Health Organization's criteria. But most women are going to get these scans done, like you mentioned, by the time they're in their 50s and 60s as a check in the box. But, you know, their doctors will order them. But if you hadn't had one yet, it's a good idea to get a baseline because that's usually too late. It'd be great to get them younger. Kevin, and what you're seeing right now is, do you recommend 30? Do you recommend 40? I mean, do you even have an age number? Is there, is there other criteria that you would look for to recommend a bone density scan? You know, the younger you can get it, the better. Okay. If you can go in and request one uh, just to get a baseline yes. to see where you're at, because a lot of times, um, and this kind of leads into one of the misunderstandings of osteoporosis is um, a lot of times, you know, a chronic condition like osteoporosis needs more than an acute solution, right? It needs more than just a, a bone drug or a calcium or vitamin D or, you know, something like that real quick fix. Um you know, a lot of people think that you have to act immediately when you get diagnosed, but really that's not true. Could be the wrong decision for that person. And when it comes to bone health, I, I like to tell people to imagine their body is like a bucket of water. Okay. And the bucket represents your body. The water within the bucket represents your bone mineral density, the measure of how much bone you have. And then I tell people to visualize that this bucket has a small hole in it with a very tiny leak. And over time, over years and years, that water level gets lower and lower and lower until one day you realize your water is low. You go, you get a bone density scan and you realize you have low bone density. You have osteopenia, osteoporosis, and you're shocked. You know, I thought my bucket was full of water. And usually it's either one of two scenarios. Okay. It's either, you know, you have a bunch of other health issues and you go in, you get a DEXA scan, or it's the opposite end of the spectrum where you work out, you eat healthy. Um, you know, you're doing everything right, or at least you think you are. And then you get a DEXA scan in your fifties or sixties and you find out you have osteopenia and osteoporosis. So, yes. Yeah, so it, it, this is interesting that it's, it's a trajectory over a lifetime. What is the concern about giving someone a, bo a, a bone density scan younger? Is it radiation, uh, exposure? What, what would be the concern of giving a younger person a scan? Cause really, they're very well, opposed to doing that. Uh, it's, it's more a matter of justification, probably like there are, uh, you have to be able to go into your doctor and justify why you want a bone density scan done, especially if you want it covered by insurance. And a lot of times they're not going to do it until you hit 
50 or 65 or something like that. Um, or unless you have other health issues, like for me, I had celiac disease. Celiac disease contributes to the malabsorption of nutri nutrients. And even with me, it wasn't immediate bone density scan. It was years until that happened. So sometimes you have to be your own best advocate. And if you can't necessarily get your doctor to order a bone density scan, again, low levels of radiation. So that's not really the biggest concern there. Um, then what you can do is sometimes there are actual imaging centers you can go to and pay for one out of pocket. That might be a hundred bucks, 125 bucks, 150 bucks, something like that. Uh, that would be one way to go about figuring that out. Now, obviously, diet plays a huge role in our overall wellness. And if you're mentioning celiac, you, you've got to be off gluten. And gluten plays a role in malabsorption throughout the whole body and inflammation. We know that now. Um, so we, have, we really want to talk about also the prevention and management of osteoporosis. So we optimize our diet, our digestion, our absorption. And we want to do that to best manage the decline of your bone health, not just there's preventing it. And also, once we find it, what do we look for? What, what, what are we going to do with our diet now and say, what can we do going forward um, to manage this? Um, well, there, there are quite a few things in, ter in terms of diet. Obviously, if there are foods in there in your diet that are causing inflammation, you need to make sure we pull those out and, and address those things. I would say even backing up a little bit before diet is um, we first need to understand if we're still losing bone right now, if today you are still experiencing active bone loss, because if you are, that has to be addressed. Like there's, there's something contributing to that bone loss and you have to figure out what that is. Um, one of the ways to identify if you actually have active bone loss is a, um, it's a blood test called a serum CTX. Okay, it's a CT low peptide test. And basically what this test looks at is it looks at the activity level of the cells that are breaking down and resorbing bone. Okay, and if the activity level of those cells are really high, that can be an indicator of active bone loss. So if we see that, then it's okay, what is causing that bone loss or what is contributing to that? And there are a lot of different causes of, of bone loss. Okay, but we have to look at it and say, if you are, you know, a postmenopausal woman, obviously that decrease in estrogen is going to lead to uh, an increase in the activity level of cells that break down bone. Estrogen has a protective effect on bone. When that decreases, that's going to increase the activity level of the cells that, that break down bone. But then there are also other causes of osteoporosis. Okay, so or osteopenia and bone loss. So for me, I mentioned celiac disease. But there could be other behaviors, conditions, diseases, disorders, medications that contribute to that. And if there are, if they are present, we need to figure that out and, and address those things. I'm Patricia um, Greenberg, and you're listening to Eat Well, Live Well, Age Well on KABC 790 AM, where we talk about all things aging well. If you just tuned in, I'm here with Kevin Ellis, the bone coach, and he's a certified integrative health coach bone health advocate and founder of bonecoach.com. We're discussing the diagnosis, diet, and potential outcomes of having osteopenia and osteoporosis. Kevin mentioned just before the break about celiac disease, and some people have another condition and discover they have bone loss either related to the condition or just as an added bonus, if you will, that getting tested for certain conditions, they find out they have bone loss. So, Kevin, I want to share a personal story with you is that sure. um, I was at a very high calcium reading at my doctor's office, and the doctor said to me, you know, it's possible that you have either hyperthyroidism 
or uh, something wrong with your bone marrow, and we're going to investigate them because generally you wouldn't get a high calcium reading just from eating too much calcium. So we did it, and it turns out I did have, of my four parathyroids, one was overactive and had to be removed, but it resulted in an osteoporosis um, diagnosis. Yeah, and that's that's actually really common. You know, I, I see this. Um, it's not too common, but I see it quite a bit just because of the population of people I work with. They usually have osteoporosis. Um, and when they come with high calcium levels, yeah, it, you know, there are a couple different things that could be contributing to that. The one that you just mentioned, hyperparathyroidism. So the parathyroids are these tiny little rice-sized glands that sit outside the, the thyroid. And a lot of times what happens is... Um, if you have primary hyperparathyroidism, it may mean that you have a, a tiny little, usually benign adenoma on one of those uh, one of those parathyroid glands, and it's causing your parathyroid hormone, which is responsible for regulating calcium levels in the blood, causing that to act up, basically. And it could be pulling calcium from the bones and putting it into the blood. And the only way to really address that is to actually have that parathyroid tumor removed. And the indicators of that, you had mentioned high calcium. Another another test that you would need to look at in that case, or another couple tests would be, you'd want to look at your actual parathyroid hormone, so PTH intact. And then you'd also want to look at your serum calcium levels. That's normally found in a uh, comprehensive metabolic panel. And then you would look at ionized calcium and you would look at your vitamin D levels. Those are the, those are the four tests that you would really look at to kind of help rule out um, primary hyperparathyroidism. I'm Patricia Greenberg. You're listening to Eat Well, Live Well, Age Well on KABC 790 AM. Coming up in the next segment, I'm going to discuss with Kevin Ellis, the bone coach, on how do we work with osteoporosis to live a healthy, normal, and active lives for the rest of our years. Kevin Ellis, we're talking about bone health, osteoporosis, how to deal with it, how to prevent it, and how to work with it if you have it. Kevin, what are the best exercises to stave off osteoporosis? Uh, well, if we're if we're talking about staving off or trying to prevent osteoporosis, I really think that that starts from an early age. Like if you remember, ninety percent of our bone mass we reach that by age eighteen. About uh, we hit peak bone mass by the time we turn about 30 years old. Okay. So, you know, asking ourselves, did, did we develop good exercise habits when we were younger? If not, that's okay. You know, it's never too late to get started developing an exercise routine, working with a personal trainer, uh, you know, figuring these things out. But I definitely think that plays a role. And when it comes to improving our bone health and doing the things to, you know, prevent, um, you know, prevent bone loss, build bone strength, we need to make sure we're applying the right stimulus building bone strength, but doing it in a way that prevents fracture and injury. Okay. And if we already know we have low bone density, um, when we're focusing on actually building bone, the, the two best approaches would be resistance training and dynamic impact. Okay. So muscle pulling on bone and actual impact exercise. So you have to challenge the muscle to grow. And also when we have muscle pulling on bone, it's, you know, sending a 
chemical or a mechanical signal is sending a chemical signal that that's inducing bone to become stronger. So if we're just starting out with resistance training, starting with good form, lower weight, then you want to build up from there. But the studies that show an effect on bone are really higher intensities. So around the six to 10 rep range. Okay. Right. Uh, um, but a lot of times you don't just want to jump right to that point and start throwing weights around, especially if you're, you're, you haven't progressed up to that point. Same thing with impact. You need to make sure you have good form before you do that. And you need to make sure you progress slowly and properly. Um, I would say those are the biggest ones. And then really for, for, you know, people don't need, I would say in most cases, it's probably worse to not exercise right? To, to completely avoid exercise because you're afraid of injuring yourself. That's probably the wrong approach to take. Um, I would say that does more harm than good. If you really want to prevent fracture uh, and injury, it's increase your bone strength or reduce the applied load that you're, you're lifting or improve your balance and prevent falling. So right. let's talk about walking for a minute because that's all everybody's talking about now, how good sure. it is for you. So what is the, at, at the, in the absence of everything else, is walking enough? Uh, walking is not going to be enough. Okay. Okay. So walking is going to have a, uh, that's more for maintaining okay. bone density also. So it's, it's great for cardiovascular health. It's not like, let's not walk because it doesn't have that big of an impact. No, it's still great for your health, but we just have to manage our expectations that just walking is not going to do it. Okay. We have to, we have to be able to, if that's part of our exercise plan and part of our goals, you know, to actually build bone strength, resistance training is going to be important in that. So the question in that is that we do want to encourage people to exercise more, certainly on a daily basis and not overextending. So could you just give me a quick starter program for a person who's just starting out or who might be a little bit frightened to exercise because of having osteoporosis? What is a, what is a quick little starter, starter package for that? I would say before anything else, go get your body mechanics evaluated, go into a personal trainer or something, make the investment, uh, look to see if it's, um, you know, especially if you don't have a foundation for exercising first, then set out to maybe, maybe do if you're, especially with resistance training, set out to do two to three times a week. Um, that's, what's probably going to have the best impact anyway, uh, on your bone health. And then you can intermingle other types of exercise with the actual resistance training too. So we don't need to overcomplicate things. Uh, we don't need to, sometimes more also is not always better. Right. It's not, let me go into the gym for an hour to an hour and a half and, or long cardio sessions, things like that. That's not actually going to be helpful for bone health. It's going to be the shorter duration, the higher intensity. Um, those are the things that are going to help. I, I just of wanted course. to ask you, I, I don't know that we discussed it enough earlier. Is what is your take on supplementation, such as taking a calcium tablet, a vitamin D tablet, and any other vitamins daily or several times a week to enhance bone health? Yeah. So uh, ideally, with uh, first thing you want to do is you look at the diet as a whole. You figure out where you're falling short. So if, if we're looking at the RDA 1200, uh, especially even for postmenopausal women, the recommendation can go up, especially if you have digestive issues to even 1500 milligrams a day. But a lot of people can't even get close to that through just diet alone. Um, so supplementation can be helpful to fill in those gaps, um, but it's not just about calcium and vitamin D. Those are uh, calcium. Yes. It's the primary mineral constituent of your bones. Vitamin D uh, helps in, you know, over 300 functions in your body. It's super, super important, but those aren't the only things, right. And we, you kind of have to evaluate everything from a, 
step back, evaluate everything as a whole. Um, I know we're short on time, so. Yeah, we're okay. We still have a few more minutes. So, Kevin, tell me, what can you reverse osteoporosis? Can you bring your bones back to where they were prior to having the osteoporosis diagnosis? This that's, is such a great question because it's something so many people focus on. Yes, you can improve your bone density. Yes, you can improve your bone strength. Uh, the wrong thing to focus on, in my opinion, is reversing osteoporosis because that could be really misleading. If somebody is just tipped into the osteoporosis category and they're at negative 2.6 bone density, if they go get a bone density scan a year to a two years later, and they now have a negative 2.4, did they really reverse osteoporosis? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe they're still within the margin of error. Maybe they have osteoarthritis. Maybe they had a fracture, you know, something like that. Those things can actually increase, show an increase in bone density, but the bones that might not actually be stronger. So what I, I tell people to focus on is focus on the leading indicators that give you the best shot of improvement. What are the near-term things that you can do in terms of diet, nutrition, gut health, exercise, stress, sleep, all the other areas for bone health? Focus on those things. That's what's going to give you the best shot at improvement. And what do you, is there an age range at which you can't fix it anymore? Or is this something we can do all the way up until we're in our 90s? Um, it, get, it just gets harder as you get older, right? It gets harder as you get older and it's harder as you lose more bone. You can build bone strength at any age, but as you, after you get to a certain point, you have less cells that help orchestrate the bone remodeling process. Um, and also the, it, the process just becomes less effective as we get older. So um, it, it just becomes harder. So that, that you know, if you're, um, you know, 50s, 60s, even 70s, things like that, do what you can. You can still make progress, build bone strength, do the things you can now. And that's what's going to give you the best shot. At yeah, every, every little bit counts. And I want to encourage people to go to thebonecoach.com. Kevin has a, a, a bottomless pit of information. He has questionnaires and they are there to help you. Um, I love everything that they're doing. It's just such a positive, wonderful, you know, if somebody gets diagnosed with something and we can turn it around and really make it work for our lives. Kevin, before we go, I want to ask you, which I ask all my guests, what do you like about getting older? Um. I love learning. Okay. Really, honestly, I just love learning about new things. I love learning about, um, you know, the, the different people that I interact with. I love learning uh, from just what I, what actually drives me. I've got young kids. I actually love being a dad. Great. Uh, that, Great. Above anything else, that's probably my number one. My number one jam is being a daddy. Thank you, Kevin. Um, I wish for all of you to live a long, healthy, happy life. And thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate nice. having you. I'm Thanks, Patricia, Patricia Greenberg. You're listening to Eat Well, Live Well, Age Well on KABC 790 AM. Coming up, we have Kenny Osen. He is the founder of Senior Living Advocates, and we're going to talk about living well in assisted living. Greenberg and welcome to Eat Well, Live Well, Age Well on KABC 790 AM. Today, I'm so happy to introduce to my listeners Kenny Osen. Like me, he has a long history working in media, specifically radio, and has now taken a leadership role in advocating for older adults. So we have a lot in common. 
He is making sure that they are cared for in their advanced years in the best possible way. His company, Senior Living Advocates, is a personalized senior advocacy and placement service serving the needs of the older adults and their adult children, helping to provide the ideal living solution outside of their home for that particular loved one. This is at no cost to the families that he works with. He's there every step of the way to assist families in making the transition to ensure it is the right fit after they move in. Welcome, Kenny. Thank you very much, Patricia. So happy to have you here. Glad now, to be here. this is a noble profession. Um, and how did you transition from being a savvy media salesman to senior advocate? Well, I guess I wanted to do something that had a little more meaning to it, a little more tangible, something that produced a little more results. And satisfaction, personal satisfaction. And um, running a national radio sales organization was not something that was really hitting the spot. So basically, I feel really good when I can solve that one important problem for each of that particular family. And if you think about it, the transition is not that much different than when I was doing before. I still serve the needs and wants of an individual versus the needs and wants of a company. So now I'm just going to put a loved one when it comes to a senior into a senior community. But you still have to have the same qualities no matter what you're doing. And the qualities that are most important to me is trustworthiness, competence, integrity, honesty, professionalism. And that's pretty much it. So tell me about what it takes to, to do what you do. Is there a, a schooling or a certification process of some sort? How, how do you get into this with, so that you're reputable and trustworthy? Well, I guess trustworthy just comes with experience. And how do you get the experience without you know being trustworthy? But what you do, there's different certifications. Um, a common one is a Society of Senior Advisors. Okay. It's a CSA, and it's a third-party certification. So it's not where the actual company does the certification and gives you the uh, answers to the questions beforehand. And there's other ones too, um, but this one is where you have um, basically an agent, certification and agent, and has given me the practical, comprehensive, and understanding of the knowledge in regard to health, financial, social, ethical issues that are really important to older adults specific to aging. Now, how do families that need assistance placing a parent find you? Well, they're not going to do it with advertising. Advertising doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for anybody in the business. Um, the reason why is people don't know my position exists. So if you don't know it exists, you don't know how to search for it. So that could be a little of an issue. Um, but there's ways, basically it's all referrals mm -hmm. from professionals, elder law attorneys, geriatric care managers, financial advisors, counselors, estate planners, and, oh yeah, and fiduciaries. Um, but what you have to do is, Really just make an introductory call and introduce yourself, make a professional introduction and let time take its course because you're talking about people that are their loved ones. They're not just going to open up and give you these people's names. So it takes some time to build that relationship. Um, also, it's an unusual business model in the sense that it's a great business model. And one reason I did get into this business is I don't get paid by the clients, Patricia, which is kind of cool. So right. I'm not selling anything. I'm providing a service. I'm a senior advocate and placement service. And what it is is that if my referral gives me a name of a, uh, of a family, let's say your parents, well, then I'm going to go and do the best job I can to solve that one problem. And if I can solve that problem, they obviously benefit. They save time energy, the unknown, I can do all that. I visit these communities. 
The referral source looks great because he's the one or she's the one who provided my name to that family. So they look good because they help provide that solution. And obviously, if I do my job, I get paid by the community. So it's a business model where everybody, it's a win-win-win. And it's kind of pretty cool, especially when I don't get paid by the clients. Now, a couple things I want to ask you. First off, uh, what what's the difference between a skilled nursing facility versus a senior community? And where does the assisted living fit in? The assisted living fits in with the senior community. That's what a senior, senior community is, independent living, assisted living, a boarding care home, a memory care center, uh, which treats dementia, most likely Alzheimer's. It's the most common form of it. Um, a skilled nursing facility. So technically a community, an assisted living or a senior community is a community that provides housing and limited care. And I stress limited care that is designed for older adults who need some physical assistance with their ADLs. And those are activities of daily living, such as showering or mobility. But they don't need the level of care that you would get at a skilled nursing facility. Um, at this assisted living or senior community, you have excellent dining. You have activities. Um, you can come and go as you please. Um, most of have an area for memory care, so you can handle the dementia side of the care needs. Um, the Department of Social Services oversees the senior community, and they only take private pay or long-term care insurance. The skilled nursing facility is a long-term care facility. It is an inpatient re- rehab and medical treatment uh, center staffed with trained medical personnel. So that's the key difference. It's also overseas by the Department of Health and Medicare and Medi-Cal will pay for it up to 100 days. And then you get discharged, you get two to, to four to a room. It's not nearly the amenities that you have. So one's more medical and the other's more of a place maybe where you retire, where you need some needs, some of the physical needs. So maybe the immediate need might be medical care or something of that nature. And then do you also work with the family once they're there to maybe place them into a more long-term situation? Because I'd imagine there's some people going into facilities that they have an acute need, but they get better, and but they still need care. So people aren't always getting worse with their health. Sometimes their health gets better. I hopefully they yes. do. And so most of the, yeah. a lot of times they do. So usually you go, if you go into a hospital, they don't want you there more than a couple of days. Um, it's very expensive. So they move you to some kind of skilled nursing facility, okay. whether it's if, most common is that someone falls and they have to go into some kind of rehabilitation with physical therapy and the likes. And eventually they get discharged. I work with skilled nursing facilities, social workers, on helping those discharged patients find a place to live if they don't want to go home and get some kind of home care at home. So I step in in that sense. Um, But I also work with, um, but they are getting better. And sometimes you go back. I have one client here in Culver City, four times she's fallen in 18 months. Mm. And she's finally going into... I'm helping put them into an assisted living uh, community. Um, but it's frustrating, but you're there. I'm there to help in any way I can to make them healthy, happier, and a better place to live. So you must encounter that a lot where there's people who are older and really need help and are just refusing to get it. They're by themselves. And so you probably have to make a judgment call separate and apart from what the family thinks they need. Well, it depends. So sometimes you're, the family's involved. I have one situation now in Tustin where the lawyer's involved and the lady's 97 years old and she has no family involved. So I am working with the lawyer. She's got full competency. She's 97. She's run out of money. She needs to change her community where she's living. Um, so I get involved. But usually it's always going to be with the families in some sense of the word. I mean, I'm there. Someone's calling me up, the, either the lawyer or the referral 
or the actual family, whether I get it word of mouth, and I'm there to help solve that one problem, which is what are we going to do with the loved one if they no longer can or want to age in place? And that's where I step in. So do you get called by social workers or by people who are intervening in families? Not usually. The social workers is usually, well, I'll get called by a geriatric care manager who's kind of like a quarterback that quarterbacks, though I know you know, but for the listeners, more of a quarterback that oversees the whole care needs of that uh, individual older adult. And sometimes they'll call me in for that. The social workers are usually only at the skilled nursing facility. But when I go in there, you know, I'm just trying to get a better picture of the older adult. You know, I am trying to just get a, you know, what do they like to do? Um, what do they, what makes them tick? So I need to do an assessment of their needs. Yeah. And what, really quick what those needs are, um, what their cognitive and physical needs are, budget, geography, cultural, religious, and thus I can find them the right place with some form of research and tours that I do. And I know all the communities. And um, you also have to act like a, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A referee. I'm sure, in a lot of situations too, yes? Yeah, a lot of times the older adult does not want to go. I mean, it's just there's a clinical term called home detachment. They don't want to leave their home. And a lot of it's a misconception or perception uh, from the older adult that these communities are shock treatment. They serve you gruel for breakfast and people are walking around and they're all, you know, drugged up. And it's not. The nicest places are like luxury hotels. And once they get there— they don't want to leave, but you got to you got to somehow open that up. But yeah, it's difficult. There's definitely some yelling back and forth, and there's some legal considerations that they can't force somebody to move unless they're considered incompetent, and that's not usually the case. So there's a lot of finesse in terms of what's best for the older adult and the adult children that are stuck, so to say, with this problem. Yeah, and unfortunately, you know, as families, we we see that as a problem, and it's it, it's a family affair. It's it's what's the, in the best interest of everybody, and yet a, a lot of family members, both the patient and the people surrounding them, do not want to cooperate. So Kenny, this is a fascinating discussion. Uh, I'm Patricia Greenberg. You're listening to Eat Well, Live Well, Age Well on KABC 790. And coming up in the next segment, we're going to talk about how do we afford, finance, and evaluate an assisted living or a senior facility for our loved ones. Tuning in, I'm Patricia Greenberg, and you're listening to Eat Well, Live Well, Age Well on KABC 790 AM, where we talk about all things aging well. Today, my guest is Kenny Osen. He has a business called Senior Living Advocates, and we are talking about how to place your loved one in either an assisted living, senior, senior community, or depending on the need of the individual Kenny is an advocate for helping you, your family, and that person get placed in the best possible circumstances. Kenny, we talked earlier, you know, what information do you gather from the family now? Because I would guess there's families that are not in agreement with what the patient needs. So how do you reconcile that when you're working on what is the best need for the for the patient coming in? Well, I do an assessment when I go in there. I'm the initial assessment, then the actual community will do a uh, assessment on their end. 
predominantly basically going to find out some information. Once again, I go back to the needs and wants. It's all about what they need and want. I'm there on behalf of the client. Once again, I don't get paid by them. So I'm going to ask them some questions, try to get to know the, um, the older adult as best I can and what makes them tick, what they like to do activities, what kind of care needs they have. But I usually start off with geography. Where do you want this place to be? Usually close to the family. If it's their loved ones, their children, adult children live further away, it doesn't matter as much. But we find out where. We find out a monthly budget. We find out, obviously, the care needs. Do they need something that handles cognitive impairment like the dementia? Or is it just a physical thing? Or maybe it's neither. There's plenty of people just as they age want to go into an independent living community and be among their own age group and not have to worry about the expenses of a month-to-month of our own homeownership. We'll also find out if there's religious needs. A lot of these places have um, services and there's cultural needs and there is whether it's important. I had one lady, she used to do some acting and she wanted one that had an actual movie theater yeah. in it. And there's funds that have movie theaters in their communities. So that was the only important thing. Her adult daughter was like, mom, how about the room? She goes, I don't care about the room. I care about if there's a movie theater. So we find out what's needs for them. Um, and we're assuming they do want to move or we're going to get a move. Like we said before the break, it's a whole other part of the equation when they don't want to move or they there's a disagreement on that. End. But I just try to listen and see what comes up and explain that physically and cognitively it is better for them to live in these communities than to age in place with one caregiver at home. That's a fact. Um, and then there's a whole cost factor we could get into maybe further along. But I just try to get that information. Then I take them on the tours personally, and we visit them. And I'm there for them in case there's questions that weren't asked that should be. And I'm there to help negotiate their their pricing and where they are. So I'm basically their advocate, their concierge every step of the way. But there that's, are disagreements, unfortunately. That's fantastic because one of the things we all have, this fear, is what you see in movies and TV. You know, that new movie out, I Care A Lot. I'm sure you've yep. heard about it. I've yes. seen it. And um, you see these horror movies of people, uh, we're going to take such good care of your mom and dad and you put them there and like you say, this this horrible cuckoo's nest scenario <laughs> of people being drugged, drugged out and, and left alone because uh, there's nothing more painful, obviously, than feeling like your parent isn't being taken care of and you relinquish control. So how do you ensure... You know, what is your role before you get to a family or match them up? How do you evaluate a facility before you even recommend her to go in? Do they let you come in and inspect? Do they give you that opportunity? Sure. Yeah, they do. I, I tour. I can't. I will not take a family to a community, one of those three that we choose once we do after we do the assessment, unless I visit it at least one time. So I've gone there. I've seen it. I try to eat a meal there if I can. Um, I look at all the rooms. I know all the questions to ask. You know, sometimes they all have a slight percentage increase in cost each year. They never tell you about it. Um, the little things, the little add-on costs, there's not many, but I know about that. But I visit it. I do the research. I go online. Um, like I said, they're on social services. The SNFs are health. So there's not as much information from the social services, but I just know it. And, and tell you the truth, price kind of dictates a lot in terms of the care. That was you know, my next question. They can pay, yeah. they can pay for uh, more caregivers or better better caregivers or more registered nurses. So that comes into play um, and it just looks nicer and they can have better food. I mean, it's kind of like the same. You pay for what you get, but there are little gems. There's some good value places that you could save a little on. It's just as good as the others. Some people rely on their names, some, especially on the memory care side. I won't mention it here, obviously, but maybe they might be a little overrated. So I know all those little nuances about it, but yes, I have done the research 
I have to make sure they're comfortable. If they're not, we'll find three more. Right. Ultimately, they have to be comfortable where they are. And that is my ultimate job and my sole responsibility. I take it very, very, very seriously. Now, are these facilities more the assisted living type rather than the senior communities? Do they have restrictions on who can visit and time frames? Because I know some of these senior communities that um, my grandmother spent the winter in one and they didn't want kids under 18. The idea was that um, it was a it was a senior community and they don't want children running around. Then you see other facilities where they have grandparents day and the children can come and swim in the pool with the grandparents. So, you know, what's the generalized tone of some of these places that do they only want the older adult there now or? Well, you know, the independent living is what you're probably talking about. Yes. My grandfather lived in one in West Palm Beach and they had their own clubhouse for eight, 18 and older, but everybody okay. can visit. But this place was huge. Independent living, you have it, you can have people visit. Um, you obviously don't want babies running around screaming. They don't like it, but there's nothing in the agreement when you sign that you can't have family visit. Um, on the assisted living side, which is like independent living, but you need some help with some of those physical activities possibly, maybe not. Um, you can come and go as you please. You don't need to check out or anything, and you can have any time of visit. And a lot of these places have their own private dining room. So in advance, you could have your family come in to celebrate, let's say, grandmother's 80th birthday, and they'll serve you a fine meal in your own in their own private dining room outside the dining wow. area. Mm-hmm. So they really make it accommodating to be fair, family friendly and family oriented. So that is not a problem that I've seen at all. That's great. And so let's talk about, um, in the next few minutes, how do we finance this? This is the scary part. Nobody knows how to pay for their retirement or what we're going to do when we get older, especially if we have special needs uh, and more um, complicated needs as we grow, as we grow older. It's the, probably the biggest problem that I come across. I say 40% of the conversations I have when someone refers me to them, they have no idea the cost of some of these places and that it's not being picked up by the government this via our taxpayer. So the nicest thing, if you're a veteran or a spouse of a veteran or a widow of a veteran, they will reimburse you up to a certain amount. If a couple comes in up to $2,300 and change, which is a sizable amount in an average assisted living, you can, that's maybe two thirds of it. So that's great. Maybe with social security or what have you, you got it covered. Uh, other than that, there's reverse mortgages for homeowners, but if you're a homeowner in Southern California and you own your home, there's probably no problem with finances because based on home prices, yeah. you're pretty much golden, right? Yeah. Um, but other than that, the best thing, which is v- uncommon, unfortunately, is long-term care insurance. And I know that you were gonna bring something up on a future show about it, but what it does is enables you to pay X amount each month whether you start in your 40s and 50s, it's very it's very nominal amount, and it gives you ten, twelve, fourteen thousand dollars a month for care for the rest of your life. Right. So it could be completely paid for. The percentage of people that have that on, right now in this 70 to 85 year old population is only five to seven percent, and it's sad. So the education process by just putting in two hundred dollars a month, I know that's a decent amount, but you do that in your late 40s and you're set, and it's so nice. But other than that, it's private pay. And it's sad when people can't afford to take care of their parents, whether they planned or not, or economic circumstances. It just it breaks my heart. And, you know, Kenny, that's another show for the future. And we are going to talk about that. But please, I encourage people to start looking at what insurance you have, what long-term care possibilities you have. The older you get, the more expensive it gets and the less it covers. So one more thing. Real yes. Quick, so you have home care. So what do you do? You can have home. You have someone take care of your your loved one at home, 
but it's a family caregiver. Right. And that just is one of the worst things for that caregiver who has to do it from a health point of view, raise a family, deal with mom, dad, right. a job. It's awful. And then other you pay for home care give, caregiving, bring a caregiver to your home, which is more common than going there, but they both cost and they add up. And if you do it at home, you still have the home cost of the home, the food, the gardening, all that. To be able to move to an assisted living, you know, affordable one is a great opportunity um, if one plans appropriately. Yeah, I, I, I guess that nobody wants to give up their home. And I guess it's the feeling of you giving up everything you know, and they try to recreate that home in your assisted living. But I can't say enough and is that they're only possessions. What's more important is that you're healthy and well cared for. So at some point you have to say, I'm going to stop tripping over my old books and sitting in my musty home or my (laughs) too big and too much to clean home that I can't take care of. And you spend your later years paying for gardener and a pool person and people to clean your house. Taxes. Taxes. When you could be free from all those responsibilities and And enjoy yourself a lot more cooking. No more cooking. Nutritious meal versus, I mean, not like, I mean, you're always going to cook a nutritious meal. Hopefully. Die, but yeah. not everybody has your talent. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kenny, do you place couples as well? Sure. Married couples that want to go together? Yeah. I have a, a client that just called me today, actually, and they're looking at, for a place, a two-bedroom uh, apartment, and they're more on the independent living side. The husband needs mm-hmm. assisted living. The mom is fi- fine, so they're going to find a place. But, yes, they're looking for a two-bedroom apartment, um, and that's not a problem. It's not as common. Obviously, usually when a spouse passes away or something happens, it's usually the— the, uh, the igniting of the of the light, so to say, to make a move. Um, that's one of the main reasons why people move, uh, other than health issues and that stuff. But yes, I do it. Okay, I want to reach out to the audience and tell them, don't wait until the situation is dire. Don't wait until you find your mom or dad laying on the floor after a few hours. Let's be proactive and reach out to Kenny Osen at SeniorLivingAdvocates.org and just get that ball rolling. If you don't need it right now, it's still good to have somebody in your Rolodex that you know down the road that you can call. I, you know, I feel very strongly about that as well, is telling people that let's get our insurance in place, let's find out what our health care needs are, and let's not wait till it's too late. This show is pre recorded and furnished by Patricia Greenberg, the Fitness Gourmet.